Good morning. Good morning. How are we? Oh, yes. I see that. All right, quick show of hands. How many of you like scary movies? All right, thanks to all three of you. I really appreciate that. Uh, I love scary movies. I grew up watching scary movies. I'm not even going to say the movies I saw because when I did that first service, people had like a visceral reaction, like, I don't know if it was I shouldn't have seen that movie. I don't know what it was. Jesus still loves me. But my wife and I, on date night, many, many times have gone to the theater to see a scary movie. Uh, And it's just, I don't know, it's something really interesting. One of the most well-known scary movies of all time is a movie that came out in 1973 with a little actress named Linda Blair. The name of the film is called The Exorcist. And that film cost $8 million to make. But since 1973, it's made over $1.2 billion dollars through box office, DVD, all those sorts of things. Isn't that interesting? It's pretty wild and scary. Uh, Normally, if I'm talking about a film as an illustration, I would show you a clip from the film. (laughs) And for a moment there, I was like, what if? And then I was like, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to freak people out. So what I've done is I I want you to see what this girl looked like. She was a little possessed girl. Um, did some crazy stuff, there was a priest involved, all these sorts of things. I don't want to show you an actual still, so I've, I've hand-drawn kind of a representation of what she, <laughs> of what she looked like, because I want you to get it, so let's just go ahead and <laughs> take a... Now that, friends, is scary, all right? I'm just saying. Why do scary movies hold such intrigue with us? Why do scary movies freak us out? Well, I think part of the reason is psychologically, we, we watch a movie like this, and our brain sort of imagines, like, there's, there's sort of that fourth wall, right? I, I get that it's a movie, but if, if the writers did a great job, the actors did a great job, you get sucked into the story, you sort of start imagining that you're there. Or you take it one step further, and you start saying, what would it be like if this really happened? Can you imagine if this thing really happened? We're in a series called Ethos. And in this series, we're exploring who God's made us to be as a church and who we're becoming. And it's several weeks because we think it's so important to get really clear about who we are. The first week, Ryan talked about our new mission statement, which is helping people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And then last week, he started with the first value, which was the value of presence, sitting in and being in God's presence. And this week, I'm going to talk about our value of wholeness. Would you say that with me? Wholeness. And I know you're wondering, how in the world does this tie to the exorcist? I'm really glad you asked that question. I'm going to look at a story in the scriptures today in the Gospel of Mark. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there, your digital device. Turn to the first chapter of Mark. It's a pretty crazy story. It's pretty wild. But what I want to do is I think this story, we'll we'll be able to use this to help frame our perspective, or really the perspective of Jesus about this value that we're talking about today, which is the value of wholeness. So turn to Mark chapter 1. A little bit of backstory. The Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark. It's a really interesting book. Um, it's, it's largely believed to be one of the earliest gospels written. And a lot of scholars talk about this fact that, that it's from an eyewitness account. 
So there are lots of other scriptural writings that weren't in real time, but this is an eyewitness account. So he knew what he was talking about. It was written uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, kind of in between Elvis and the Beatles. So just to give you a little bit of... I'm t- somebody's going to go home and, well, I never really realized that it's really... No, 2,000 years ago, okay? So there's two interesting things about Mark that I want to just sort of frame with before we get too far into it. The first one is Mark moves really fast in this book. If you are ADD in this room, this is the book for you. So if you're like, which gospel account do I read? It's this. Boom, boom, moving. He moves quickly. As a matter of fact, the word immediately is used around 73 times in the gospel of Mark. He just cuts to the next thing. So Mark's always just giving us the, the very bare bones. This is what you need to know. And then this happened. And then this happened. It's, it's more like uh, an action movie. Whereas if you go over to the gospel of Luke, he slows down and talks about a lot of emotion, a lot of feeling, and lots of facts. It's more like a romantic film. As a matter of fact, I think Luke is the author of the screenplay for The Notebook. It was just a thought. Some scholars believe with that. Uh, not all scholars believe that, but, you know, and I'm the only scholar that believes that. But Mark was a no-nonsense guy, and he's saying, I got to share with you what really happened, and I'm going to cut right to it. Okay, so that's the first thing, that, that it's fast-moving. The second thing is he uses really picturesque language. He's really beautiful language. It's very descriptive. A lot of the words that he uses are, are loaded with meaning. So there's the word, but then there's the meaning behind the word, and he's using that to paint a really vivid picture of what's going on. Most English translations, they don't always do a great job of that. So I'm going to borrow from uh, today a translation called The Voice that is a little more picturesque and still captures the true intent of the meaning. Um, he's also one of those guys that he doesn't say a lot of words, but when he does say something, we should pay attention because it's really, really important. So Mark chapter 1, what we're seeing here is the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. And it starts out in verse 14 with Jesus calling the first four disciples, which are Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And these guys were fishermen, right? And he goes to them and he says what? Hey, drop everything and follow me. And they did it. Have you ever thought about, isn't that a little bit bananas? Like if someone came to you and said, hey, uh, lay down everything you own and come follow me, would your posture be like, yeah, okay, cool? Probably not. I'd be asking, uh, having some conversation around pay and how many vacation days do I get? What are the benefits? Could I see the company financials? I need to vet this thing. These guys did not do that. They said, come follow me, which is really intriguing. They cut right to that. And it's the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. I think it's really interesting how the story we're about to dive into comes off the tales of Jesus calling his disciples. That's a really important detail. Don't forget that. These these four disciples are following Jesus, and they come to this town called Capernaum, which was was a village uh, on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so the first thing that he does after calling them as his disciples is he goes to the synagogue to teach. Now, a synagogue is like a little church. We don't know how many people. Maybe there were 50. Maybe there were 100. We don't know. But, it, but it, he shows up at this gathering of people. And often, synagogue leaders would invite a visiting teacher to teach that day. And so Jesus walks in, and he sits down, and he begins to teach. And that's where I want to pick it up today, Mark chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 21. And we're going to go through this story together. And then I'm just going to pull out a couple of observations from this story about wholeness that I think are going to help us both individually and as a church in our journey. So I'm going to be reading from The Voice. Your translation is probably pretty similar, but one reason I like this, it's a really good translation. 
but it was a combination of scholars and poets and artists. So they were thinking about the exact word. So they're thinking like, if this work in greed, this work, word, let's back up. If this word in Greek means this, how can we most effectively put it on the page? And that's what we see. Here we go. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 21. They came at last to the village of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And on the Sabbath day, Jesus went straight into a synagogue, sat down, and began to teach. The people looked at each other, amazed, because the strange teacher acted as one authorized by God. And what he taught affected them in ways their own scribes' teachings could not. Just then, a man in the gathering who was overcome by an unclean spirit shouted, What are you doing here, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I can see who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Side, side note, why is it in every like, Christian depiction of biblical stories, why is it that Jesus has blonde-haired, blue eyes? That always throws me off. Number two, why is it all the demons and Satan and all that, they all sound like Gollum? Why do they do that? Who are you, Jesus? You are my precious. Why do they do that? And then why does everybody speak in a British accent? I don't know. But I told you, listen, Mark is a great book for ADD. Back to the story. All right. Verse 25, Jesus rebukes him and says, be quiet and come out now. The man's body began to shake and shudder, and then, howling, the spirit flew out of the man. The people couldn't stop talking about what they had seen. And the people said, who is this Jesus? This is a new teaching, and it has such authority. Even the unclean spirits obey his commands. And it wasn't long before news of Jesus spread all over the countryside of Galilee. Whoa. What a story, huh? Is this something that you see something like this like every day in your life? Probably not. It's unbelievable. And you know, for a lot of us, reading a story like this, it makes us wrestle. See, we didn't grow up 400 years ago. We've grown up post-enlightenment, which means that our skeptical brain is on every time we read a story like this. And I know lots of people that read a story like this and they go, well, that didn't really happen. Or they immerse themselves into... Well, let's really get down into what really happened here. And I think the question we ask often is, what do we do with the story? A lot of us look at a story like this, and because we're smart, thinking type people, we don't know what to do with it. But what's interesting is that four or 500 years ago, pre-enlightenment, people would read this story, and you know what they would say happened? A guy was demon-possessed, and he stood up and challenged Jesus. But whether we like it or not, we read with modern eyes, and our skeptical brain sometimes has trouble with this, and sometimes we can get stuck, or we can get so focused on the mechanics of what technically happened in this passage that we miss hearing what God has to say about this. And the truth is, what really happened here is, is not in unanimous agreement throughout the centuries. Even the early church fathers, they disagreed on how to read this passage. You know, some commentaries will say, well, we take it literally. It says Jesus stood up or, and taught, and this man stood up and called him out. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Others say, well, no, no, clearly this is a type of, it's a metaphor. This didn't really happen. There's some principle behind the text. And, and yet others say that this man was having some sort of mental illness or having some sort of problem uh, with his thinking or something. And the, the thing is, we can get really caught up on that. Like, was it literal? I don't know. I, I wasn't there, were you? Was it metaphor? Is there some story behind the story? Pro probably. Did the guy have some sort of uh, psychological issue? Who knows? I think if we get hung up on that, we might miss an opportunity to hear what God is saying to us. 
And, and I just want to reframe as we started looking at this story. Maybe another question we should ask is, what is the point of this story? And what's God saying to us today? So we're not caught up in like how crazy and out there it is and miss what the Spirit wants to say and do in you and I today. Make sense? Now, can you imagine a scenario where this happened in our church community where I'm up here teaching and Ryan's up here teaching, someone stands up and starts speaking to us in Gollum's voice. Can you imagine what that would be like? That would be weird. And for most people, it would be pretty weird and scary. And I'm trying to imagine those people who were there, it probably was pretty scary. They were trying to figure out what in the world is going on. So what I want to do today is I want to dig into this story a little bit and just pull out a couple of observations from this text to help us see what really is going on and what we can learn from the gaze and the posture of Jesus about wholeness. When I first started looking at this text and I started asking myself, well, what's really happening here? At first, I thought it was, this is just all about how much authority Jesus had, right? I mean, Jesus is establishing his authority, right? The very first thing he did is he called his disciples, and then he went in and he had this amazing demonstration of power or authority, right? Now, notice how the people respond when he does this, this display of power. Verse 22, the people looked at each other amazed because this strange teacher acted as one authorized by God. And what he taught affected them in ways their own scribes' teachings could not. I know you guys can relate to this because I know right now you're amazed at my teaching. I mean, I can see it on your face. You don't have to laugh so loud. That, was, that hurt. <laughs> oh, man. I need to take a break after that. was great. So seriously, though, Jesus started to teach in a way that they weren't used to because most people, when they'd come in to, to teach, they would come in and they would open up the scriptures and they would start reading from it and then they would say, you've heard it said and they would give you a list of what rabbinical tradition had to say. Does that make sense? They, were, they would tell you what the commentaries had to say. The authority that they had did not come from them. It came from the tradition, the rabbinical tradition. Jesus gets up and we see this through, throughout scripture, him saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Well, what is he doing? He's claiming whose authority? God's authority, his own authority. Well, that had to be like, blow their minds when they did that. So he was speaking with authority, and then this guy stands up, and he starts shouting at him, and, and he responds quickly and decisively, and he says, be quiet, verse 25, and come out of him now. He didn't spend a ton of time talking about it or trying to figure out the theological implications of what was happening with this guy. No, he cut right to it, and he said, come out right now. And so he spoke simply and with authority, and, and the demons obeyed. So we could look at those two examples and say, well, clearly this passage is all about Jesus establishing his authority, right? And that's pretty cool, because who doesn't like watching Chuck Norris pound on the bad guy? So Jesus steps in, he does this thing, end of story, right? Well, yeah, I do think we could see from this passage that Jesus is demonstrating his authority. And Mark's cut out a lot of the fluff and said he goes from calling disciples to demonstrating authority. But I don't think that's the biggest takeaway. I think the biggest takeaway isn't that he has authority, but rather what his authority is used for. Make sense? See, some people who are leaders, their authority is rooted in fear and manipulation or what someone else said or a degree or something like that. But I think what's remarkable about the authority of Jesus is that it's so evidently rooted in love. His authority is rooted in in love. See, our gaze looking at this story is as a Western outsider 2,000 years later looking in, reading in third person. But to really understand the heartbeat of God, 
to figure out what living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus looks like, what if we shifted our understanding of this text to see it not from an outsider's perspective, but from the perspective of Jesus? What if we did that? Isn't that how we should read all of Scripture through the lens of Christ? So if we, if we shift our perspective from this sort of spectator who's cheering him on, like, go do it, do all this, we push past this low-hanging fruit of whether it was real or whether it's metaphor, all those, um, and we'd see what Jesus was really looking at. And that's what I want to look at just for a few moments this morning. What was Jesus looking at? Well, he was looking at the man who was possessed. I mean, it's easy to, to look at the surface, at the, the, the presenting thing. This was a guy that others had judged. They had likely judged him and condemned him, and they put labels on him and called him all these things. And probably every time he started speaking, they thought, well, that's just, uh, that's just crazy Joe. But I don't, I don't see that. I don't see Jesus doing that. No, Jesus looks at this guy out of what? Out of love. And he speaks with authority, not just to show that he's some bad guy, or not just saying you're a horrible person. He wasn't even at all calling this guy a horrible person. He was pushing beyond that uh, because his authority has its roots in love. And because of that, Jesus wasn't content to let this affliction, this thing that had fallen, befallen this guy, he wasn't content to let him sit in that. His entire ministry, the very, very beginning of his ministry, starts with the move to show that he has the authority of God and that with great power he would choose to begin the work of restoring people to what? Wholeness. That's powerful. He didn't display it in a lot of other ways. He displayed it with humility and love to restore people toward wholeness. And so the first observation I think we can take away from this story this morning is that Jesus uses his power to bring wholeness. You know, he could have built himself a house. He could have done all these things. It's like Bruce Almighty, right? He could have given himself cars and a huge giant swimming pool and, you know, lattes all day and all these sorts of things. But what's remarkable about the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about is that he didn't focus on any of those things. There was no, like, let me focus on material possessions or, well, I want you to all just, you know, look at me. It was, it was demonstrated through humility and love and through pulling others toward wholeness. That's why the kingdom of God message is so powerful. Most of the rulers would come on the scene with power and with dominion and with force to make some sort of display, but the way of Jesus is rooted in love. And because love is one of the primary attributes of God, he'll always act in a loving way. That's really good news, isn't it? We don't have to worry that Jesus somehow will like forget that he's supposed to be rooted in love. And then someone has to stand up and go, hey, uh, remember that whole love thing? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me get back to that. I should unsmote those people, right? Jesus doesn't do that. He always is led by love. And one thing we can learn from this passage is that despite our shortcomings, despite our brokenness, that Jesus has this ability to look past those labels and that stuff and see our potential, to see who God's created them to be. We don't always do that, do we? Sometimes when we look at other people, we, we judge them because of what we see on the outside. All of us do that and have done that at some point. There are no exceptions to this whatsoever. And we live in a world that loves to label things, to stick a label on it. And part of it is physiological. It's our need to understand, is this safe or not? So we, we look at someone and say, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? Are you married or are you single? Are you broken? Are you whole? Are you gay or are you straight? Are you all these sorts of labels to try to bring understanding? And sometimes that's helpful, but most often those labels aren't. 
too often we get stuck with labels that describe where we are right now, not where God's calling us to go. I think that's really dangerous. The view of Jesus here is looking beyond all that stuff. He's always moving and redeeming and working to restore people to wholeness. You know, when we were praying about these values and trying to determine, like, what are the values that we will say describe who we most are as a community? This one jumped right to the top, wholeness. Because we see this consistent pattern of Jesus in the scriptures meeting people where they are and calling them to wholeness. Remember the woman caught in adultery and everyone wanted to kill her. Jesus talked with her and what did he command her to do? To go and sin no more. Well, he didn't say, Here, you're, you're terrible for these 32 reasons. He said, this is who God's called you to be. And he pointed her toward wholeness. To help us understand a little bit about what wholeness is, I think it could be helpful to just give you a little bit of a, an idea of what that container is. So what is wholeness? I think there's some words we can use to sort of give some parameters to what wholeness is. I'm going to give you seven words. You can write these down. There are seven sort of words. There may be more, but this is just to get us going. The first one is physical. So the parts of yourself that make up you. What is a whole human being? Jesus models for us what a whole human being looks like in at least seven areas. There's our physical self. That's our bodies. There's our emotional self. That's uh, our feelings, the way we process feelings. There's our mental self, the way that we think. Our spiritual self, the way that we hear from and relate to God. Our relational self, the way that we relate to others. Our financial self, the way that we manage our money, the way that we steward the gifts that God's given us. And lastly, our vocational self, the way that we leverage our gifts and our, our, our wiring for the goodness of God, to live into our vocation. And it's fascinating that in the story we see Jesus model so quickly right away moving someone toward wholeness. And that's one of the reasons why we're so committed this, to this idea of helping people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Because we so believe Jesus is pulling us toward wholeness that we want to care about the whole person. But living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus looks a lot like that. It looks like growing in those things. Does that make sense? Imagine Jesus looks out to the crowd and this man stands up and he's broken and something else is controlling him completely. I don't know if he literally had a demon. I don't know. The amazing thing is that Jesus looks out and he sees this guy who's got this affliction. And Jesus immediately demonstrates that he has power over those things that aren't whole. So if you look at that list and you sort of do a self-inventory and go, man, there, yeah, there are parts of that that I'm doing great and there are parts of that that I'm stinking at. Jesus has the power over those things. There's no part of you or me that he can't help. There's no part of you or me that he doesn't desire to bring back into wholeness, the way that he originally created us to be. So the bottom line is that Jesus' authority is rooted in love, and he's not content to let us remain in our brokenness. And that, yes, he has power and authority, but he leverages that to bring wholeness. That's the first observation from this passage. The second observation about this is that the journey toward wholeness is often really easy. True? What? <laughs> what? No, that is not true. It is not true. It's often really hard. You know, in this story, it kind of looks like Jesus spoke to this guy and bam, everything's good. Uh, the guy was whole. We don't know if he was completely whole. We just know that one part of him Jesus spoke to. He could have weighed a 1,000 pounds. He could have had broken relationships in his life. He could have had a billion dollars of debt. We really don't know. What we do know is that Jesus spoke directly to this demon, and the demon comes out. But, but remember back at the beginning how I said that Mark uses really vivid language. Remember that? 
And I want to just go back to that for a second because I think the language he uses is intense and powerful. Jesus speaks to the demon, and the demon doesn't go, oh, okie dokie, and pop right on out and head on out of town. That's not what we see. Let's look at verse 26. The man's body began to shake and shudder, and then howling, the spirit flew out of the man. That's pretty vivid. If you have a teenager, you know what this is like. (laughs) If you ask your teen to do something, they begin to shake and to shudder, and then they start howling, right? This is where the Greek is really descriptive, and something you don't see in the English is that the Greek implies that it literally tore him as it came out. Physically, like it tore him, it damaged, it wounded, it did something on the way out. How many of you have ever been fishing? Fishing? That's a new word. Fishing, and you got a hook caught in your skin. When you take the hook out of your skin, is it like a super clean break? If it were, the fish would never stay on the hook. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you get a fish hook in you or in your cheek or wherever it might be, it's going to hurt coming out and it's going to leave a mark. So the Greek is very clear in this, that as this demon left him, it left a mark and it, it, it did not go easily. And probably what came out of him left some kind of lasting side effects. Now, did Jesus heal him after this completely? I don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us that. Mark just gave us what he thought were the most important details here. But when I see this passage, I see that Jesus intervened and he speaks to the darkness and the darkness leaves, but it was violent physically toward him and it left with a shriek. And the truth is the journey toward wholeness is often really painful. It can be jarring. Why? It's because taking steps toward wholeness means that those seven areas of our life that we we, instead of like playing little spiritual Christians, we can just talk about Jesus and talk about the Bible. Now we're talking about our physical selves, our financial selves, and our relational selves, and our emotional selves. It means we're shining a light into parts of us that we don't want to look at all too often. This is the time of year when people realize that they've paid for four months of gym membership. And they made a commitment going into this year. I'm going to eat right, I'm going to exercise 27 times a day, and I'm going to have the Atlas body by May 20th, right? And then too many of us look at our bank statement and go, I have paid for four months of gym membership, and I have been one time. Why? Why is that so hard? Why don't we do more on that? Well, if you've ever tried to lose a bunch of weight and work out, you know how hard that can be. And to get strong, for our muscles to get strong... What has to happen to them in order for growth to happen? They have to tear. What what does tearing cause? Pain. Yeah. You know, financially, if you're struggling with debt or you don't make enough money, there's going to be a price. You're going to be working extra hours, maybe working two jobs. You're selling everything but the dog and the kids. doing whatever it takes, losing sleep, time with friends and family, and on and on it goes, so that you can get what you ultimately want, which is wholeness. But you're only doing those things temporarily so you can take steps toward wholeness. You know, emotionally, sometimes when we have to change the way that we feel or process our feelings or look at the way that we think, that is hard. It takes a lot of work. And sometimes when we start digging into our emotional selves, it can feel violent. It can feel painful. It can feel jarring. Relationally, someone once said that you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. Think about that. The five people you spend the most time with influence the person that you are. And sometimes... If you decide you want to move toward wholeness, you realize, I'm hanging out with some people who don't push me toward wholeness. 
And sometimes you have to make a hard decision. I'm not going to hang out with those people anymore. I'm going to choose different kind of people to hang out with. And there's a cost. It can be really painful. And the reason most people don't take the steps to become whole, they're, they're really good at maybe one of those or, or pretending on some of those, but really becoming vulnerable and looking at the deep stuff is because it takes a lot of work to get there and it's hard. But I just believe that we have to be a church that's so committed to this idea of helping people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus that we don't just take one part of them to account. The discipleship and growth and all those things have to take the whole human being into practice. So if we're not asking one another how our marriage is or how we're doing relationally or how we're doing financially or if our job is feeding us and we feel like we're on mission, on point, if we're not asking those questions, if all we're asking is, have we memorized certain parts of Scripture, we're, we're not fully doing it. And that's not the way that we see Jesus doing it. We see Jesus helping people become whole human beings. And it's hard. I wish I could just take a pill, like a wholeness pill. If they sold that at Whole Foods, I would be driving over there right now, getting the whole pill, wholeness pill, pop it right in. Now I'm whole. The truth is, like, we don't gain a bunch of weight overnight. We don't get into a bunch of debt typically overnight. Our marriages don't fail typically overnight. So why do we think that we can walk out of those things overnight? I wish sometimes that the brokenness in me, the stuff that I have to contend with, that Jesus would just speak to it and it would just magically go away. I don't know about you and your experience, but that's historically how that's not happened in my life. Amen? A few years ago, I was going through a, a really rough season in life. And I was just having to process a lot of stuff. Um, There's some personal stuff I was contending with and a lot of just baggage from childhood that I was staring at. And I started doing a lot of reflection and I realized that in my 20s, I spent so much time trying to be the person that I thought everyone else expected me to be. Anyone else done that? All of us have done that. That was my identity. It's who everybody else expects me to be. And did you know that when you try really hard to be who everybody else wants you to be, it's really hard. It takes a lot of work. And I was emotionally numb in my 20s, and I got married, and I had kids, and um, started turning into my 30s, and I started going, there's got to be more than this. Like, I'm tired of feeling like I'm wearing someone else's underwear. That is not a good feeling, all right? But that's the way that it felt. And so I started doing some work, and I took some assessments and personality profiles, and I started going, oh my gosh, for the first time in my life, I'm reading things that describe who I feel like I am inside. And it was a cool journey. Like, I'm like looking at all this stuff and going, well, here are my strengths, and here's how I'm wired, and what my my disc profile is, and all these sorts of things. And I started getting clarity around that. And there wasn't really a lot of pain in that because it was just giving me a clearer picture of who God made me to be. That's really, really cool. Then life happened. And I went through this really difficult season. And we all go through the pain, don't we? And I went to this therapist, and I went in and I started talking about what was going on. And in the second session, I'll never forget, she looked at me and she kind of smiled and she said, I get the idea that you see going to therapy as a project. And I was like, you are smart. You, my friend, are very perceptive. Here's the $90. She then said, I get the feeling you think you should be able to knock out these issues in two to three sessions. Is that correct? And I'm like, again... You clearly are worthy of a license to counsel people because you are very in tune with me at this time. And I, it sounds so funny saying it now, but I'll never forget. She sort of sat back and just put her fingers together and smiled. And she said, we'll see. <laughs> and seven years later, 
I still call her, and we still talk. Here's what happened. I told you a little bit about the way that I felt in my 20s, and I had come into this discovery of like my wiring and all these things, but there are all these things that had impacted me from life that, were, that, that had contributed to brokenness to me that I couldn't even see. And it was very painful because she held up a mirror to me and just showed me all of these ways that I thought about myself, that I thought about other people. It was literally so bad. I had this voice, we call it the monster voice, that was telling me how terrible I am, how worthless I am, what a loser I am, all these kinds of things. And literally, if I were in a meeting and I had to get up and go to the bathroom, I would just hold it for hours because I didn't want to because I assumed if I leave the room, everybody's just talking about how much they hate me and what a loser I am and why is this pathetic loser on our team kind of thing. It's kind of funny, but it's true. I've met hundreds and hundreds of people throughout the years that have that little voice that's talking to them and saying, you're worthless and you're pathetic and you're not good enough. Every person in this room has heard that voice that says you're not good enough. And just like that man in the scriptures, probably people condemned him or they gave him that little, little label. We've all felt that way. But in therapy, I realized I've got to slog through this. I had to do a lot of work and I'm still having to do uh, do that. Sometimes when I'm stressed, that voice comes up again, and I, but I, now I recognize it and go, wait a second, this seems off. But sometimes it, it gets me for a little bit. It's, it's this idea of like changing the way we think and the way we behave, it's very, very hard to do. There is no magic pill. There is no magic pill that makes you get in the best shape of your life. There's no magic pill that fixes your marriage or changes the way that you think. It's by slogging through it. You know what it is? It's by putting one foot in front of the other and making a choice to take a step toward wholeness in those seven areas. So when I look through this story and I ask, well, what can we learn from this? The things that I see clearly are is that Jesus was really committed to wholeness. In fact, his authority is rooted in love and that he's not content to let us sit and remain in our brokenness. And I also learned that sometimes this journey toward wholeness is really painful. And you might be sitting here today going, yeah, I hear you. I've been trying really, really hard. I'm just not getting there. I mean, I, you know, all of us, the first of the year, we, we put out these ridiculous resolutions. And you know what resolutions do for most people? They set up the tea to bring shame upon ourselves at some point in the next few weeks. Why do we do that? That's not the pattern of Jesus. Jesus looks beyond that stuff and just says, here's one thing I'm going to tackle right now. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking like, man, I've been trying really hard to lose weight or I'm trying to fix my marriage or all these sorts of things, you just need to know that Jesus is not content to let you sit in your brokenness. He's intervening. The Spirit of God is working constantly to pull you toward the image of God that is within you, the Imago Dei. He, it's still there. It might be marred and broken by sin and shame and guilt and all those things, but Jesus is not content to let you sit in it. It's just that sometimes we don't have perspective. Sometimes God's moving in all these ways and we don't see it until later. In the midst of that season I was talking about, that was the most painful uh, experience of my life navigating through that season. And I wish there were another way, but I will tell you this. Just as the song the team sang earlier, it's in the season of pain that we grow the most. It's true. And I've got enough gray in my beard now to say it's there because I've been through some things. And I will just tell you, I, I sometimes wish there were another way, but just like Jesus huddled in the garden and he prayed and said, Lord, if there's any other way, 
But there wasn't. And he faced it. And he made it. And he modeled for us what being a whole human being is all about. And let me just tell you, toward the end of the story, people see this, and they saw the, the things that happened, and their minds were blown. They were astonished. And I'll just say, when we... I heard once someone say, um, we can't all relate to one another's successes. If I see a 22-year-old college football athlete get a million-dollar signing bonus to go play football for some team, I can't relate to that at all. But when someone's honest and vulnerable about their pain, about the gap between where they are and what wholeness looks like for them, people can relate to that. We can't all relate to one another's successes. We can all relate to one another's pain. And I think when we open ourselves up to be vulnerable, people listen. When you think about people far from God, and we just talk about how great everything is, and well, the Bible clearly says this, and so everything's fine, and we don't ever open ourselves up to go, I've got some work to do. They tune out the message of grace. But when we say, I'm struggling with this, when this is difficult, like, statistically, our marriages aren't any better than someone who doesn't follow Jesus. Why is that? When we open up to be vulnerable and to talk about those things, people pay attention. And when God starts redeeming things in us and moving us toward wholeness, people pay attention to that. And they're intrigued by that. And the more we open ourselves up to let the Holy Spirit mold and shape us and move us into the person that God created us to be, the more we work to take uh, steps to help others do that, the more that we do that, the more others will see and say, I don't know what that is, but I want that. You hear me? It's awesome. Here's my hope, that we'd be a community filled with people who are devoting their lives toward helping others become who God has created them to be. That we'd be the kind of community that would look beyond the surface presentation, that would drop the labels and would stop saying, well, clearly this person is mired in this and this. If we look beyond that and say, this is who God made that person to be. If we would adopt a curious posture instead of a judgmental posture, and we would just listen and go, Holy Spirit, what are you saying about this person? I know it's, it's almost never just the thing they present with, right? Usually there's something deeper. I dream that we'd be that kind of community that would look beyond the surface and would pull people toward wholeness. I love at our baptism a couple weeks ago, we had a number of people baptized from our Celebrate Recovery community. If you don't know what Celebrate Recovery is, it's a gathering, it's really a tribe within a tribe. It's a gathering on Tuesday nights at 6.30 where people are welcome to come with their hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Did you know something? Every person in this room has a hurt, habit, or hang-up. So people, it's a comfortable, safe environment for people just to come and say, man, I'm broken and I need some work. And there are people with all different kinds of afflictions. Some are recovering from drugs or alcohol. Others are recovering from think, the way that they think. Others are working through physical issues and on and on. But really, one thing I love about Celebrate Recovery is it gives people freedom to come in and look at those seven things and journey toward wholeness in community. And a couple of weeks ago when we had baptism, I saw three or four people who were part of that Tuesday night CR group get baptized. And you know what happened when they did that? It wasn't that they're like, I'm completely whole and everything's perfect. They were, just, they were actually incredibly vulnerable with this church community to say, I'm working through my stuff. And I'm so thankful at what God is doing, the grace of God and how it's impacting my life. I'm going to get baptized in front of the whole church to identify with the grace that I got from Jesus Christ. I think that's really beautiful, friends. 
And I think that's a picture of what churches should be. And I love that that's here. And I love that there are so many people in a part of this church who so understand this idea of wholeness that it's changing how they choose to live their life. From the things that they eat to the way that they think to the types of relationships they're in to the people that they're caring well for. I love that we see this so much in our church. I love that we have a food bank that feeds a ton of people every Saturday morning. But there are volunteers all during the week like sorting food and taking care of things. Why? To help people take a step toward wholeness with, with food. So they're not going without. I love that we see stories like that. I love that we see people befriending uh, single moms who are really struggling and helping them and helping them have a more whole life and taking care of their kids in a more holistic way. I think that's really beautiful. And my prayer, friends, is that even when the journey is hard, we'd remember that the gaze of Jesus extends beyond our stuff, beyond the facade, that shell that we've all built, to the person that God created us to be. And the good work of Jesus is calling people toward wholeness. And I'm thankful that God continues to do that today. So now the hard part. I'm going to ask this question. What about you? I mean, I've talked about this this guy in the story. I've talked about Jesus. I've talked about Celebrate Recovery and the food bank and some great things that are happening in our community. But if Jesus were here teaching today and he were to gaze out across this crowd and his eyes were to meet you, would your first instinct know that his first gaze would be looking beyond your brokenness and to your potential? For a lot of us, we would answer that as no. You know, for some of us, that's the first thing we need to consider, that that little voice inside that says we're not good enough, we're not worthy, it says I'm lovable, that that's not what we see from Scripture. But the, that the real gaze of Jesus is beyond our stuff, beyond the mess to the person that God's created us to be. And so maybe for some of us here today, we need to receive grace. Maybe this story is to help us see that Jesus looks at us with arms open wide. I'm going to put back up on the screen those seven areas, parts of our life, if you will, that cumulatively work together to create a whole human being. And I want you just to take a little self-inventory as you look at those. If Jesus were here today teaching and he gazed at you, if, if a part of your life, maybe in one of those handful of areas, stood up and shout, who are you? Have you come to get rid of me? What do you want with me? If, if some part of your life would stand up and respond to Jesus in that way, which part or parts would it be? For some of us, it's a, a physical part of our life. We're not taking care of our bodies well. For others, it's financial. We're not managing our money well. We're not stewarding the gifts that God's entrusted us with. For others, it's, it's relationships that are standing up going, I need some help here in my family or in my relationships with others. For, for others, maybe it's vocationally. Maybe some of us in this room are in dead-end jobs and we feel no sense of life or purpose as we go to work. Why? Why not take a look at that? I'm going to ask you to think about that. And it might be helpful to take a picture of this slide or to make sure you have it written down so you can chew on it this week and, and just say to God, God, I know you're committed to wholeness. You're not content to just let me sit where I am. And I'm going to ask you uh, to just go with two questions. This is your reflection. This is your practice for the week. What areas of your life are less than whole? I'm going to ask you just to think about that. 
Out of those seven things, what parts of your life are less than whole? Because not all of us are a perfect 10 in all of those. If we are, check your pulse because you're probably not alive anymore, right? We all have room to grow and to work. And then the second question I'll throw out in just a second, but for me, I know when I'm going to just hackle something, like I'm going to physically get in the best shape ever. I start working out like crazy, just go nuts. And then like three days in, I hurt myself because I'm just overdoing it. I think that the question is like, what's a step that you can take? And that's the second question. What could you do this week to take a step toward wholeness? You're not going to be whole in all seven of those things. For some of us, we're whole in a couple of these and we're doing terribly in three or four of them. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to vacillate through life. Sometimes, some seasons you're doing really, really well in one and not in another. And then you'll go work on this and then the first one lacks. The goal of this is not to introduce this idea of guilt and shame of I just can't get there. The goal is am I taking a step toward progress? That's the work the Holy Spirit is pulling us toward. So maybe it's getting on a written budget or maybe for some of us it's choosing to eat healthy or to stop telling ourselves those negative thoughts or to spend more time investing in our family or whatever it might be. I want you just to remember that Jesus' authority is rooted in love and that he always sees the best in us. And he's always committed to pulling us toward wholeness. So I'm going to give you just a couple of moments to reflect on these. And I'm going to ask our elders to go ahead and come up. At the end of every gathering, we... Uh, have our elders come up front and invite you to come up for prayer. The band's going to sing one final song. And I just want to encourage you as the elders come to just come on up during the song and, and ask for prayer. If you, if you need prayer today, if you want them to put their hand on your shoulder and pray over you as you take a journey toward wholeness, I want you to do that. So let's reflect. Elders, go ahead and come on up. And then uh, the band's going to sing.